You're listening to Training Data from Cosmic Works, which is a part of the InQtel podcast series, which can be found on SoundCloud. In December 2013, a young Bay Area startup called Skybox Imaging collected an approximately 90-second high-definition video from low Earth orbit with a satellite called SkySat-1. Weighing roughly uh, 85 kilograms and costing at a per unit level exponentially less than anything else uh, built by traditional systems. The satellite and the video it collected helped jumpstart a movement in challenging how organizations think about space, mapping, analytics, and just more generally, remote sensing. Skybox and other innovative startups, as well as incumbent players, were essentially trying to rewrite the rules of the game in the geospatial industry. Around the same time, Alex Krzyzewski won the ImageNet large-scale visual recognition challenge in 2012 using a convolutional neural network known as AlexNet that utilized graphic processing units or GPUs. AlexNet dramatically outperformed other implementations and in the process made computer vision uh, much more tractable to a variety of applications. In the following years, ImageNet winners would surpass human levels of performance for image recognition. The question for us at EQTEL back in late 2013 and early 2014 was what these two trends meant for the national security community, and most importantly, what would the intersection of these two trends look like? On today's EQTEL podcast with Cosmic Works, we'll explore these questions and how they led us to the creation of our lab. I'm Ryan Lewis, I'm the co-founder and lead for Cosmic Works, and before that, I was an account director for our investment team. And I'm David Lindenbaum, fellow co-founder and principal engineer, as well as the lead for Cosmic's contribution to SpaceNet, which we'll talk more about later. Before that, I was a systems engineer with Inkutel. With us today is Vishal Sandesera, who is an inquisitive mind, as well as the official host for Inkutel's podcast series. He'll be helping us today walk through our motivation for starting Cosmic and what we're currently doing. How's it going, Michelle? Hey, guys. Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on today's show. Um, I'm particularly excited to talk to you guys about sort of the origin story of Cosmic Works. I have a lot of questions. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, so first and foremost, um, in the introduction, Ryan, you just mentioned that there were these two major technology trends unfolding in the early 2010s. Now, it's one thing to see a trend, and it's, I think, a different thing to sort of act on it or even know how to act on it. Um, along those lines, how did you at Cosmic Works, how did, how did you guys think about how to respond? Uh, what did you start with for a vision when it came to a lab like Cosmic Works? Oh, man. Uh, I wish we had had uh, the vision for Cosmic that exists today when we first started. It would have made everything so much easier. But uh, unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, uh, we took a much more circuitous route to get to where we are today. Mm-hmm. It really all started back in December 2013. Up to that point, we and other members of the investment team have been having a lot of conversations with our government partners, some startups and VCs about some emerging trends in the commercial space and aerospace domain. And in preparation for an internal strategy meeting here at EQTEL uh, that was scheduled in January of 14, we put together a single page strategy that had a lot of icons on it. They were different colors. Uh, that essentially highlighted for us areas that we thought would be good to invest Mm -hmm. in or at least research further. Really, in creating that document, it was the first time that we thought about the implications 
of new space as well in the same dock as the rapid advancements in computer vision. I see. So were you, was it, is it fair to say that you were always focused on analytics as, as a primary point for the lab? It was something that we were always focused on and we, we knew it was just intuitively like many others that it was going to be important. But it wasn't the only area that we explored as a potential lab idea or as just an applied research project. Uh, in fact, in the early days when we were still trying to figure out what was happening in the market and more specifically where some of the key uh, areas for development were, we had some pretty crazy ideas. Uh, Dave, and I know we had a couple. Do you remember any specific? Tell us, Dave. Uh, so there are a couple, but uh, I think the favorite one was early on was the thought that we should launch our own CubeSat, which we uh, termed InQset. We really like the cube. Clever. Um, in retrospect, we learned a lot about how complex space really was. Um, in the same way as everyone else saying that you just launch a CubeSat at the time, the details were much more interesting. Um, what we learned from that really was actually how hard space still is, and it really informed us on an idea of um, really a deep dive into all aspects of the space um, infrastructure mm -hmm. and the geospatial industry that was there to consume that data. Um, and so all that knowledge is invaluable for us to help create Cosmic and think about where Cosmic works could affect um, the industry itself um, and really help build us a, a broader investment strategy across the whole geospatial and space community. I see. So you were doing some deep market and technical analyses. What happened after that? You know, in looking at the entire space industry from dedicated launch, uh, which has really matured just in the last six months, uh, to advanced analytic applications, we realized uh, over really a period of six months that the core driver for this new and emerging industry was going to be novel analytics capabilities. And wh why is that? Well, new applications capable of parsing not just current data that's already collected by space or airborne assets, but potentially large increasing amounts generated from uh, startups that were either launching new satellites or unmanned aerial systems or just other remote sensing mediums in general, those applications were needed to accelerate demand. Mm -hmm. Because as now what seems common sense, uh, particularly parsing through large amounts of imagery and video is a really hard problem. You know, we've been working at this problem uh, in concert with a variety of other partners at Cosmo for three and a half years, and we can tell you that things that seem benign are still challenging, mm -hmm. particularly when you're trying to do them at scale. And so we knew that if this industry is going to mature and venture is going to continue to put capital into content creation platforms, because that's really how you think about a satellite or a drone. It's essentially capturing imagery or video and serving that content out. We knew there had to be something on the end to catch that and to go through all that information. And just from a quick survey, we realized when you talk, when you take two different, these two different trends, space-borne data or overhead data and computer vision, realize there's not a lot uh, in the realm of intersection when it comes to when in early 2013 and 2014. I see. Yeah, uh, one of the things that really helped us early on and really helped focus our thought process was our development of our commercial space architecture. Uh, if you want to look at it, it's up on our website and it's actually also on our SlideShare feed. Uh, the architecture was really interesting because it was our way of thinking about how to identify all the key enablers across the whole entire space and geospatial um, ecosystem how everything fits together. Um, it's a very interdependent ecosystem where various companies interact in multiple ways with each other. And so as one fails or one grows, 
um, that has ramifications across the whole entire ecosystem. What it really also did was help us specify those specific priorities and bottleneck points where technology wasn't being developed and where it needed to be in a couple of years to take advantage of things in different areas of the pipeline. Um, and then the last part is it really helped us, once we focused on some of those bottlenecks, realizing that one of those bottlenecks was this area of advanced analytics functions. Um, and so what it helped us look at is, in this ecosystem, what was being developed at the time and where, uh, where we needed to get ahead of the development so we could start making sure the capabilities were going to come to bear. Um, and that was really what the architecture helped us out. Um, as a way of thinking about this, uh, think about a, a disaster response scenario where I'm going to go after an earthquake, and the first thing I'm going to do is try to uh, take new satellite or drone imagery and develop a new automated up-to-date map. Um, so what I'm going to have to do is first, to find all the buildings and roads, I'm going to do instant segmentation on this whole entire satellite image. Um, and then I'm going to deploy that out into a thought of how are people going to consume that in a way that's going to work. Um, that whole process is going everywhere from mission planning on how I'm going to actually task a satellite or a drone, the building of the payload on the satellite or drone to actually collect that imagery, downlink it and actually access that data, and then do something analytic with it to provide that to an end user who can then do higher level functions like think about where to place aid stations or count how many damaged buildings there are and how much of an effect an earthquake was. Um, that whole ecosystem is actually right now very disparate. Um, and they all interact with each other, but that whole interactions is really described by the ecosystem and our architecture. That's a, that's a tall order, Dave. Uh, so let me ask you guys a question. Um, when it comes to being able to even make a dent in the space that you're, unintended, in the space that you're working in, um, are there a lot, is there a lot of research you can leverage, a lot of open source repositories or any sort of uh, shared work that you can leverage or even uh, make sense of to get your work done? What is it that you're doing in terms of uh, leaning on the existing or, or, or perhaps using the current state of the art to, to do what you guys are set forth to do? At that time, in the early days, the answer is no. Uh, it is akin to trying to like buy milk in the D.C. area after the news announces there may be a 10% chance of snow. <laughs> you will not find milk. And or at that bad. time, we would not find open source repositories that were plug and play right. uh, for taking a computer vision algorithm and applying it to a remote sensing data set. Um, and the fact that there was such a dearth was almost a motivation right, for us to focus on this. And yet it was a somewhat unstructured motivation. Right? It's hard to remember now, but this was in the era before the release of Google's TensorFlow, which I don't even want to remember sometimes what it was oh, like before. Dark then. days. It was dark. Dark days. But essentially, if you look across the spectrum of just what Dave was describing, what's necessary uh, to build an analytic workflow with this type of information. The dearth of algorithms, associated tools and utilities, as well as labeled data sets, uh, all that really motivated us to tune our efforts to design an applied research lab that would accelerate work at this critical, at this critical intersection. So if there weren't tools, how can we start doing work to make them? Mm -hmm. If there weren't data sets, how can we start not only making them, but characterizing what's even necessary? And as a result, we also wanted to focus, though, on just given the dynamic nature of the market, mm -hmm. stay, keep our eye beyond just machine learning work. So we kept our perspective in providing market analyses and trade studies so we could stay tuned to potential shifts in the market. Because at that time, uh, so much of our work was also still informing our core investment strategy. So long story short, after a long discussion about the lab's name, we finally settled on Cosmic Works 
Uh, and that's Cosmic with a Q. So you kept the Q. Although some people do like to also call it Cosmic Q Works, which we do respond to. Reasonable. Uh, but after all that, we settled on the lab and in, at our CEO Summit uh, conference in February of 2015, we announced its official launch and then officially kicked everything off with standing desk nice. in April of 15. Well, on behalf of our audience and by, on behalf of the You Can Tell podcast audience, we, we, we all wish you a belated congratulations. So you formed Cosmic Works. The lab was created. A uh, reasonable amount of celebration, I'm sure, ensued. What happened the, the week after? So that, that's when reality set in, and then we realized, okay, it's great to have this general direction, but what do we actually do? There's a reason there's a dearth of these tools, and it's not just because people are focused on other things. As we said, this is hard. And so our first step as a team uh, at that time, which was just three of us, so it was me, Dave, and Todd Stavish, uh, we had to set up, uh, set up uh, the task of is how do we structure ourselves? What deliverables do we do? Mm-hmm. And more importantly, what's the purpose of those deliverables? Who gets what? What do people need? And so we generally categorized our work at that time into three categories. So early machine learning uh, research and open source projects, market research, essentially staying tuned to what was happening at that time in a really fast-paced uh, investment market, as well as a technology advisor, uh, which was essentially looking at areas that maybe InQtel doesn't focus on, but certainly had tertiary effects, such as like the satellite communications market. Mm-hmm. When it comes to specifically in the machine learning domain, we knew that we had to stress test what was out there if before we could start setting about creating anything new. We needed to know the current limits of what was offered by the existing tool suite. And so for our first project, it was really one more of exploration than anything else. Mm-hmm. So before we get asked what needs to be built, we need to know what's the current limits of what's out there. And that's essentially when I looked at Dave and saying, hey, Dave, what do we do? And I looked at him and got research. <laughs> so, you know, as Ryan really put out there, when we started Cosmic Works, this was really at the beginning of data uh, of, of the remote sensing kind of revolution and really the real hard part was even getting data to look at was a challenge uh, we had a lot of relationships but I remember celebrating the first day we downloaded a, a large satellite image over FTP it took 20 hours um, we actually did celebrate that yeah, by the way excellent uh, uh, and you know and that's not because of um, that's because the way we wanted to consume the data was so different than the way it was being distributed at the time similarly the tools we wanted didn't exist at the time. Uh, we, you know, a lot of the tools were desktop tools like uh, ArcGIS or QGIS, which are great tools for looking at satellite imagery, but they weren't going to work on the scale we wanted. Um, they weren't going to work the tool. They didn't interact with the tool sets that we wanted. So we kind of had to start from scratch. We started looking at all the low-level applications. Uh, GDAL became one of my favorite and uh, most hated um, tool sets at the same time. Um, really, in trying to understand how do we make and work with geospatial data um, at scale. Um, so we started there, um, working with data and starting to create our own data sets, um, our own ways of exploring questions. Um, and so really with that exploration, we really worked hard. Uh, but it was a challenge in the early days. We built a lot, we rewrote a lot afterwards, because if you look at our first generation, uh, that was not the right way to go about things. But iteration two was a little bit better, and iteration three was even better than that. Um, and we're still improving. Um, we're still working with that ecosystem. And as new tools come online, we take hard looks at our tools and say, do we need ours or can we move to something else mm-hmm. every time? 
I, I think it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned early days. I want to draw out the point that when you talk about early days, you're actually not talking about a very long time ago. It, it sort of speaks to the volume of how quickly things move uh, in, this, in the, again, pun intended space that you're working in. I want to ask you both about how your lab has evolved sort of to, to deal with the ever-changing pace of, of technology and what's available in the market. But just, just for our listeners' um, sense, can you talk to, are we talking in terms of, hey, early days was like three, the lab's been around for maybe three or, three or four years. When you first start out, there were no tools. In that time, um, TensorFlow has come out. Are there a lot of tools now? And like, what's happened in those three to four years since early days till now? And uh, how do you sort of think about the evolution of the lab going forward in the next three to four years, which I ima imagine will, again, outpace the amount of development that's occurred in the previous three or four? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, and I think uh, it's one that we're so tightly focused in this area that it's hard. It seems like secondhand for us. But in reality, when we talk about early days, we're really referring to about three and a half years ago. And honestly, from our perspective, a lot of the acceleration has occurred just in the last year in terms of not just more mature open source projects, whether for frameworks or for algorithms, but also for now medium-sized to large tech companies that are putting out high-quality frameworks as well as associated tool suites. Uh, whether, whether you're looking at Xavia, Development Seed, or even Mapbox, all these companies are putting out projects that help accelerate work in this sector. Yeah, another example is Digital Globe's GBDX platform and Planet's API. Um, both of those are starting to make access to the data and imagery infinitely more um, accessible. Um, those things didn't exist, you know, they were thoughts, but they didn't exist a couple of years ago. And as those things come into play now, the ease of data and, and the kind of this concept of cloud native um, geospatial compute, compute is starting to take traction, and suddenly you're starting to see some real possibilities being. So the work of all these groups has not just helped inform and direct some of our work, mm -hmm. but it's also helped us mature our strategy in terms of how we even think about how to tackle these problems. So in the, as we mentioned in our first year, it was all more exploration. What works, what doesn't. Since then, we've been able to take a much more systematic approach to our strategy. From the data side, looking at the input requirements from a resolution perspective how crisp does the image need to be to perform a certain type of object detection. From a spectral perspective, does three bands help? Does eight bands help? That's a problem that is intrinsically unique to remote sensing that we haven't seen or wasn't seen in the early days of uh, other computer vision research. It's an awesome problem, but also a hard one. And then uh, third, from a temporal perspective, a lot of what we hear about in the geospatial domain is characterizing patterns and identifying things that are different. And part of doing that is you need to have a robust data set. Um, as more companies talk about building or, or evolving their constellations, it raises a great question. How much data is necessary to answer certain pattern questions? These are all things that have certainly have a qualitative component, mm -hmm. but as we begin to mature a machine learning workflow, they also have a quantitative component. And what's so cool about this sector, and it, all these, you know, th three and a half years later, it's still exciting for, for me, is that these decisions aren't just analytic uh, research or analytic projects. These decisions can directly influence, as Dave was talking about earlier with the architecture, what gets built, what gets launched. And that is something that is so tangible 
that it's it's hard not to get excited about this problem all yeah. these years later. There's real life implications to it. Stuff that's flying above our heads. Um, another project that's evolved over the years really comes out of that um, that challenge we described about access to tools and data. Mm -hmm. um, so, two years ago, we started um, a project called SpaceNet, with in conjunction with Digital Globes and Nvidia. Um, that has moved actually into a larger partnership over the last two years, um, really partnership with AWS, uh, Digital Globe, Radiant Solutions, uh, Cosmic Works, and Intel. And what we really are working on is um, making the ease of access to machine learning data in a remote sensing world as easy as possible. Um, so really removing those barriers of entry. Um, we're going to talk a lot more about that in future uh, things, but really what progress of SpaceNet is allowing people to uh, get access to imagery and labels and do their own experimentation and remove some of those first problems. That, that first question of what data is there, we try to remove that problem. That's right. As, as your host, I would be uh, remiss not to mention uh, for our listeners, if you're curious about SpaceNet, we actually had a conversation um, and on an earlier podcast. I encourage you all to go uh, listen to it if you haven't already. Um, the gentlemen here do an excellent job explaining the motivation and some of the, uh, the recent projects and competitions associated with that particular uh, initiative. Gentlemen, when it comes to Cosmic Works, uh, what's next in light of, you know, ex uh, projects, deliverables, or f even future podcasts? What, what's in store? So for us, I think what we definitely have to talk about in future podcasts has been the core focus of our strategy for the last year, which is focusing uh, on inputs across the entire machine learning workflow, from understanding what are really important pre-processing steps such as super resolution, which our, our technical director, Dr. Adam Van Atten, and our geospatial engineer, Jacob Schirmeyer, uh, have been working on uh, to important uh, outputs of that in terms of what algorithms best fit for certain applications. Mm -hmm. uh, Dave mentioned SpaceNet. Uh, our newest data scientist, doc Dr. Nicholas Weir, recently released a baseline algorithm for our current SpaceNet competition. And that's a great way to assess quality performance with new implementations that we get from the challenge. I see. So in future podcasts, we'd definitely like to talk all about that. Dave, anything else? Um, we're currently running SpaceNet 4 Challenge, off-nader image detection that's really working on trying to understand how different angles of satellite imagery will challenge your um, standard computer vision models. It's running right now, so you could either compete or we'll be writing a lot about the results um, as they come out in the next couple months. Uh, so stay tuned for that, too. Excellent. Guys, this was great. Ryan, Dave, thank you for your time and answering my questions. I look forward to hearing more and speaking with you more about future uh, initiatives and projects at Cosmic Works. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Newton had three laws. Cosmic's learned a couple more. Space Club rule number three. There is no magic answers box. Thank you for listening to today's show. You can find more information and links to different sites and data sets and presentations about the content discussed today at cosmicworks.org, and that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, the downlink, on Medium, which is with a Q. You're seeing a trend here. We like the letter Q. Thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from IQT's marketing and communications team. Also, thank you to Vishal Sandesera for joining us on today's discussion. Music was provided by DC Zone Redline Addiction. A special note, since this recording, Dave Lindenbaum has moved on to his next career opportunity, and we wish him all the best. Talk again soon. Take care.